Hello and welcome to the latest Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and I'm joined as always by Peter Silen, my friend and fund manager whose uh, family originally comes from Central Europe and uh, has a very refreshingly different perspective on matters that are going on at the moment, the terrible matters that are going on at the moment, it should be said, uh, from my own rather UK-centric position on the edge of the continent. So, Peter, welcome uh, to this latest podcast. It's been a few weeks since the last one. uh, And, of course, an awful lot has happened in that time. We're now a month into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And um, terrible scenes still on the television screens of what's going on out there. War is always brutal and it's uh, even more brutalized or appears to be when it's brought into your living room. Uh, One can only feel enormous empathy and sympathy for the people of Ukraine who are however, resisting with extraordinary courage and resilience uh, the Russian invasion, which appears to have stalled somewhat. So, Peter, let's kick off. I mean, we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about the effect on the EU and uh, also what uh, what it all means to the financial markets, which are our primary professional concern. So um, where do you think we are? I mean, the Russian advance has stalled, at least in the north of Ukraine. What's your reading of where we are now in this uh, awful conflict? Good morning, Jonathan. It's very nice to be back online. And so much is going on so quickly and the changes are coming thick and fast, which means that any podcast like this one that we have could be a little bit out of date by tomorrow. So one has to look at these things very carefully. I saw a very interesting program, an interview with Sir Anthony Beaver yesterday, who wrote a number of books, very good books, uh, not least about Russia. And he said that the relative ineptitude, if that's the right word, of the Russians in their military advance is nothing new. They've always had less than first-rate military operations, and you could see that in full swing in Ukraine today. And I must say that um, I'm very pleased to see the Ukrainian people being so valiant and courageous because the neighbors to the West are anything but courageous. And so just for a bit of background, I think Putin had a deal with the people, which was if you want an increased Western-style standard of living, you have to accept less democracy. But of course, both these elements are all over now because Less democracy is a bit of a joke. It's absolutely no democracy. And as for an increased Western-style standard of living, that's over as well because hundreds of Western companies are closing shop in Russia. And at the same time, of course, all the news, the media outlets are also being closed down with the result that the Russian people are completely taken over by fake news. And... um, You can see that by the statistic that 70% of the population actually approve what Putin calls his military operations. So they're obviously totally brainwashed by fake news. That's a bit of local background, Jonathan. Indeed. Um, I mean, of course, one of the interesting things is in this modern age of uh, communications, you know, all the soldiers who are out there in Ukraine, and many of whom appear to have been somewhat misled about what they were being asked to do, find themselves doing something which they weren't expecting and morale is we believe is low i mean they will be calling back home and eventually even in a country where the state media as you say is completely controlled by putin's men and paints this extraordinarily false picture of what's going on 
uh, one has to think that there will be some information seepage, uh, and eventually there may be some comeback. But there's no sign of that from uh, kind of popular dissent, as you say, at this point. So, what do you think of the way that uh, you know NATO and the EU have been responding so far? I mean, there was initially, I think you took the view that they were rather feeble in their response to uh, Putin's threats of invasion, and now that the invasions happened. There has been uh, some stiffening of backbone uh, in Europe, I think it's fair to say, and some potentially quite dramatic changes in policy by uh, some of the countries in Europe. Uh, but do you think this is a, a, a positive or a negative? How do you read that as far as Europe is concerned? And we might talk about NATO in a moment. As far as Europe is concerned, it's got to be a positive. Anything that produces steps forward is positive. In Europe, we all know, um, you know as well as I do, Jonathan, that uh, you need a nice crisis in Europe in order for the European Union to move forward a step. It's always been like that in the past. And so, although, if you like, there's still a long way to go to, before you reach the ever closer union, as it's called, there is an action plan of some kind where France and Germany are leading this action plan. But also smaller states are consulted, as well as Central European countries. You will have noticed about probably 10 days ago that the prime ministers of Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovenia went to see President Zelensky. They embarked on a very long trip, quite a dangerous trip over land, and they finally had a couple of days of meetings with him. Now, on the one hand, you can consider that a step forward, which it is, because those are the very people who are best informed about what's going on. They have the Russian bear at their doorstep. So that's the good news. The bad news is that the EU, or the rest of the EU, immediately declared that these three prime ministers are speaking for themselves and not for the EU. So I haven't moved from my position from last time we spoke, Jonathan, that there is a great big appeasement going on, just like there was in Munich in 1938 and many times since, and that Putin, who only understands one language, uh, is not being faced with that one language. So you could argue on the one hand that slowly is better than not at all, but on the other hand, they should move a lot faster. And then, of course, there's a prospect of whether Ukraine will actually join the EU. That's more or less where we are now. Indeed. I mean, you must be pleased, though, uh, given your earlier criticisms, I think it's fair to say, of uh, German uh, politicians. You must be pleased that the new chancellor appears to be uh, you know, overseeing some quite uh, dramatic changes in policy and their eyes have perhaps been opened to the, the flaws in the Ostpolitik that they've been following for for a number of uh, a number of years. And your particular bogeyman, uh, Mr. Schroeder, appears to be um, rightly castigated for having led that uh, campaign. Well, Mr. Schroeder described Mr. Putin probably about five to ten years after Putin reached power as a blemish-free Democrat. I repeat, a blemish-free Democrat. Now, of course, there are usually commercial reasons why a German would call somebody like Putin a blemish-free Democrat. And these commercial reasons persist to this very day. So what Chancellor Scholz recently did was, as you say, quite rightly a U-turn with regard to their previous attitude. But I wouldn't go so far as to say this is all great and it's um, 
the ice is broken and now we finally have the Germans completely on side. I wouldn't say that yet. Um, also because I think the German Chancellor is, is a relatively weak man who keeps his cards close to his chest. Um, so don't hold your breath on, on that front. But still, still, you could argue that there are certain steps towards, let's call it a common security policy, a common foreign policy, and most importantly at the moment, of course, a common energy policy. And so if you see that as um, a step-by-step countering of what Putin is doing, which could, of course, be much faster, it should be much faster, but at least it's going in the right direction. There are a lot of areas that are not being discussed at all, like, for example, what the Russians are trying to do in the Balkans. The press is full of what's happening in the Baltics and could, but nobody's concentrating on what's happening and could happen in the Balkans. And the answer is a lot. So I don't think that there's any difference between the between this regime and the Soviet regime. And I may add that the attitude of the Russian soldiers, yes, on the one hand, they didn't expect to be greeted by Molotov cocktails. They expected to be greeted by flowers, especially in the East. But nonetheless, these horror stories that you read regarding the situation in places like Mariupol, it's the soldiers that are doing it. And anyone who has any experience of Russian soldiers on their um, land and on their territory knows what this means. So I wouldn't get too carried away with saying these poor Russian soldiers, they've been hoodwinked by Putin. Of course they have, but they're the ones who are responsible for the atrocities that are going to end up with them being in Den Haag, in the Hague's courts. So I think we should keep a balanced view of that. Of course, I wasn't suggesting otherwise. And indeed, uh, you mentioned Anthony Beaver and his, uh, you know, some of the history he's written as uh, gives us many examples of what happened when the Russians crossed the border into Ukraine and other areas. So yes, that's a grim picture. And of course, we don't yet know, of course, I mean, there's a, you know, the fog of war. Obviously, there's been a lot of analysts at the beginning got it completely wrong. And now there's a lot of analysts saying, well, of course, now, you know, the Russian advance has stalled. We're not quite sure how it's going to end up. And of course, that's true. We don't know, you know, the, the, the military course is not entirely clear, though it does, some of the elements of it are. But I think what's happening in eastern Ukraine and around the Black Sea is obviously going to be pretty gruesome. And that obviously seems to be, or at least if you believe him, what Putin is now concentrating on, getting control of that and getting the, you know, the, the land border to Crimea and so on. So we don't know what the outcome is. Would you agree that the outcome is not going to be, as some people uh, would hope, a total defeat for Putin? It's going to be still the most likely outcome is some sort of agreed you know, settlement, uh, which will have various elements, we don't know what they are, uh, with uh, various uh, commitments which he may or may not keep in future. We know that Mr. Erdogan in Turkey, uh, and other countries of interest to you, Peter, is, uh, you know, is playing a sort of go-between role and might be the broker of this deal. What do you think? Do you have any, you know, any views on how this all might end at the moment? I mean, given we don't know, of course, how the military thing will unfold over the next few weeks. Well, the, any view of how this might end today could be superseded by events tomorrow. The fact that Erdogan is involved is good, I suppose. That is has always historically been Turkey's role in the in the region and beyond. 
So I suppose that's good. In terms of when and how it'll end, that's difficult to say because there are new news coming out every day. Today, for example, one reads that President Zelensky has said he could conceivably imagine a neutral Ukraine. The problem with neutrality, specifically with regard to Ukraine, is that it means that an agreement has to be reached with the Russians, an agreement which, of course, needs to be sanctioned also by the other players involved, no doubt. But it also means that the constitution, the Ukrainian constitution, will need to be changed. A further thing that it means and that bothers me is that countries rarely declare neutrality of their own volition. They usually declare neutrality as a result of being forced so to do by their adversaries or rivals or enemies. So I don't think anybody in Ukraine wants to be neutral. And if they are, then they will obviously only do it if they have guaranteed security all around them. But of course, if you go back to the Budapest Agreement, we have the same clauses in that agreement. And one of the guarantors of the Ukrainian security were the Russians themselves. And that leads one back to the assumption that you can't trust the Russians. You can't trust a Russian signature or a Russian declaration. And so you've got to choose between the least bad option. On the one hand, some kind of synthetic arrangement, which will be far from guaranteeing security on the one hand. And on the other hand, a continuation of the very weak reactions by the European Union, by NATO, and by the Americans. So I don't think that we will be emerging from this crisis with a great big smile on our face and with a more secure Europe until there is a fundamental change of approach by the weak Western governments, Jonathan. What do you think about that? Uh, well, I'm sure that the, there's no perfect outcome to this. I think there's no, as you say, and there will be, the security concerns won't go away. In fact, they may be intensified by what's happened. Uh, for the very reasons that you've said. And even if, you know, even in the extreme example where Putin was basically removed, which I don't think is going to happen, I don't think anybody realistically thinks that's going to happen, but you never know. We don't know who will come along behind him. And so there's always going to be that, uh, and that this tradition, which is, uh, you know, deeply embedded since the Soviet era in, in the Russian uh, way of behaving is going to remain. Uh, so that is a concern. So I don't think, as you said, I don't think there's any really good outcome here. Uh, there is a least bad outcome. And, uh, you know, for the people of Ukraine, it's going to be a tough period. They're going to have to reconstruct the country, even if they, you know, can maintain its uh, geographical integrity. And that's going to involve a lot of money and a lot of hardship and a lot of who knows what. Um, so, yeah, and, and we don't yet know that we're even at that stage. So I do agree with you. There's no particular good outcomes from this at the moment. Uh, there has been some stiffening of resolve, though, even if, uh, you know, policymakers have, in America and NATO and Europe have been uh, perhaps less robust than one would wish. Uh, maybe they will be in future. I don't know. But I think that just leaves us on to the question then of what this all means for the financial markets. We are groping still in an era of uncertainty, a great period of uncertainty. And also at the same time, this interesting background of uh, central banks trying to raise interest rates to head off what is now a clear sort of inflationary crisis in the West, in many countries in the West anyway which is, you know, unanticipated by the central banks, even if it's not totally unexpected by some of us, given what's been happening. 
So where do you think we are? Two things that haven't really are significant. I mean, the 10-year US bond yield has risen quite sharply and is uh, coming up against some technical indicators. If it goes through you know, 2.4% and goes much higher, then that will be a change in regime from everything we've known for the last uh, 30, 40 years. So bond yields have been rising in response to the Fed's uh, announcements, I believe. And uh, at the same time, the stock market has made a little bit of a recovery in the last couple of weeks. So uh, what, what do you think that all uh, means, Peter? Jonathan, I think that the situation on the bond market, which we can talk about first, is very complicated indeed, very complex. The situation in the equities market is, if you like, also complicated, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit less so. So if we start with the government bond markets, you're, you're quite right. The, the yields have risen very dramatically, especially in the two leading bond markets, which are the U.S. and the German bond market. And it's been actually a bloodbath for investors over the last, let's say, six to nine months. There's been a relentless rising of yields. But on the other hand, what is crystallizing now and what's happening, what's been happening in the last couple of weeks is that the American yield curves appears to have been flattening and could potentially be inverting. So that would indicate what they call stagflation, which is you have stagnation in the economy, and there are quite a few signs of that already now. And it could be made worse by the new Omicron COVID variant. I mean, for example, in your country, the COVID cases are exploding, as they are in other countries um, around Europe. So that could produce a stagnation in the world economy uh, or even a recession in the world economy. And that would be reflected in the longer duration bond yield, say the 10-year yield, which admittedly has gone up. And admittedly, if it pierces that 2.4%, it could be in for a much rougher ride. I agree with that. But on the other hand, rate rises have been so well documented that it should have pierced that level a long time ago. So the stag nation part of stagflation is reflected in the longer bond yields, whereas the inflation part of stagflation is reflected in the shorter bond yields, say the two-year bond yields, which have been going up quite sharply. And clearly, as bond market investors, they have taken a great big haircut, not only in nominal terms, but also in real terms. Um, because bond investor Investing in bonds today is a sure way of a permanent loss of capital, certainly in real terms. So that's been a disaster area. But on the other hand, on the positive side of, of the equation, if we do, do have a slowing down economy, then the central banks will think again before they aggressively continue to raise rates. They'll think again. And you could interpret the stock markets, the equity prices that have not only stabilized, but actually bounced back to an extent, of being reflective of that very scenario. If we just, as a final comment, just focus on the three elements of stock markets, which are growth, liquidity, and valuation. Uh, first of all, growth is likely to be affected through the stagnation and the inflation and the new COVID variant, of which one reads more and more. 
the liquidity picture is more dangerous because it's a little bit like a slow puncture. So we must not only watch the sovereign spreads in the eurozone, but also the credit spreads, the difference between corporate yields and sovereign yields. Watch that very carefully. And then thirdly, valuation. Well, if you were afraid to buy shares on the 1st of January because they were so overpriced, then, of course, prices are much more reasonable now, particularly for quality businesses. And then finally, with regard to fear over greed and with regard to the dictum of being greedy when others are fearful, well, that fear is offered to you on a silver plate. And maybe this is a time to start being greedy. And as markets potentially are doing, maybe looking ahead and perplexing most of the market's participants, Jonathan. Well, that, of course, is their historic uh, function in some ways. <laughs> That's <laughs> exactly what they do. Uh, one of the guys I've talked to over many years describes the stock market as the great humiliator because even the most profound and you know experienced investors can be caught out by some of the things. Uh, and I think I mentioned last time we spoke about... Um, you know, that fascinating book by uh, Barton Biggs about what happened during the war and when the stock market actually picked up the change in fortunes of both the Western Front and the uh, uh, Asian Pacific Front, uh, even though most of the participants had no idea that the uh, even those who were fighting the battles uh, did not realize that this was indeed about to happen. So you maybe you could argue that the, you know, the stock market picking up um, when it was 10 days ago or two weeks ago was around the time that it was becoming clear that the, the Russian was not going to have a walk-in victory, for example. But having said all that, uh, I mean, I think the point you're making is that, as always in financial markets, there are first-order effects, which are then reflected in prices, and then there are second-order effects, which uh, have to be thought through. So, as you just say, what happens if the central banks now don't do what the markets were expecting to do initially at the start of the year, but actually go more slowly or, or whatever, uh, and then we're going to see issues there. But I guess, I mean, in the short term, obviously, we don't know. You can't predict where the market's going to go in the short term. Maybe it's a time to be greedy where others are fearful. But I guess from my point of view, that would certainly depend on what does happen to bond yields now. I mean, if they do retreat from where they are now, and yet the other factors that you've described, growth, liquidity, and so on, are still there, uh, I personally would not be sure that the equity markets would do as well as you might be suggesting. Uh, but from a long-term point of view, from a long-term investor's perspective, of course, you know, uh, if the markets are cheaper than they were and the companies you're investing in are still very good companies, then, uh, you know, there's, there's a case for putting some more money in uh, at these levels. That I can certainly agree. What is the feedback you're getting from the kind of companies, you know, these strong balance sheet quality growth companies that you, that your team invest in, uh, solely invest in? Uh, what are they kind of saying about the outlook from here when you talk to them? Well, first of all, what they have what they have reported um, in the last few weeks were very strong quarterly earnings, um, better than expected. I'm saying this in general terms. Um, each is slightly different, but in general terms, they've reported better than expected earnings, so they've beaten expectations. Their forecasts are also um, encouraging, which of course leads the brokers to upgrade their own forecasts, which in turn leads to rising share prices because the PE ratios suddenly are that much cheaper. So that's the sort of general picture. But um, we are doing a deep dive study into the extent to which they can exercise their pricing power. And I've noticed that a lot of companies are coming through, even companies that, that don't have pricing power, are claiming to have pricing power. 
So what one needs to do now as a financial analyst is to take a close look at the input costs of each of these companies. So not so much the general consumer price inflation rate, but the actual specific input costs of each one of the companies and to gauge the extent to which they can uh, neutralize these rising input costs through increased prices, thereby protecting their margins. So it's all about margin protection, at least in the short term, until such a time as you either uh, uh, enjoy a, a base effect change on the rates of inflation and by extension on the input costs, um, such that the inflation rates will then start going down again. Or if not, if inflation is persistent and stubborn, for example, because we are heading towards new lockdowns, or for example, because people not so much of our age, Jonathan, but of sort of slightly younger, simply don't want to go back to work. So the participation rate doesn't improve. And therefore, you have a continuation of the supply side uh, problems, um, bottlenecks, which would keep inflation rates stubbornly high. You would then need to see how this year develops. If you ask the markets, uh, and let's let's wait until the end of this month because it's Q1, people reposition themselves and very often as soon as Q1 is finished and you launch into a new quarter, you could have a slightly different approach by investors. But then you see, Jonathan, you're asking the wrong person because I will always advocate investing into quality growth businesses for the long term because that's where the best results are achievable. So your question would legitimately be, what about the valuation out of growth into um, value, the rotation, the rotation out of growth into value? How is that doing and how long would it last? That's a slightly separate discussion, which I'm perfectly happy to have. Indeed. I mean, but of course, the, the other aspect of this is that one plausible outcome, not saying necessary, but plausible outcome is that we are going to see a sustained period of higher commodity prices. We're going to see uh, the oil price may stay, you know, I, I don't think it's going to go to $200 a barrel, but, you know, it could, could stay pretty high because of all the factors we've talked about. So I guess the kind of, you know, the funds you run, they don't really invest in commodity businesses because they don't meet your criteria quality growth. So from your investor's point of view, there may be a period when, you know, your fund is doing a little bit uh, less well than some other funds are doing. And that's where you pitched your tent, as it were. But I think the question then, so the question on the valuations, I think, from my point of view would be, we have been a period which has almost been Goldilocks, I guess, in a way for quality growth companies and uh, well, lots of companies generally. And that seems to come to an end. I mean, I think one of the outcomes of what we're seeing now in Ukraine and, and, and everything else, the inflation, is that this period is not going to be as benign as ones before. And therefore, you might think, particularly if uh, bond yields continue to rise, that valuations generally will come down and that will be something which will affect your companies as well as uh, everybody else's. They will affect our companies as much as anyone else's at the moment when and if the inflation rate rises above the discount rate which we use to discount future, do you see, future cash flows. If the re inflation rate rises above that rate, in our, in our case, it's 7.5%, the discount rate that we use. If inflation should rise beyond that and persist, then I think we will have to effectively increase our discount rate. And that could mean 
that the valuation of our companies based on the discounted cash flows look less interesting compared with now. But the share prices have fallen in some cases quite dramatically since the beginning of the year. And the outlook for our businesses remains the same by their own declarations. And so if they struggle to meet the input costs and the margins deteriorate at the same time as we are obliged to increase the discount rates for their future cash flows, that could present a a short-term problem. So one has to take a view on that, all that happening. And uh, to come back to what you said, will, will energy prices relentlessly go up? I don't think anything relentlessly goes up or relentlessly goes down. There are a lot of players involved. And then, of course, not to mention this obsession with climate change, which has caused nobody to invest anymore into fossil fuels at a time when the renewables are not available yet. So you could have a supply-demand imbalance for sure. I mean, we're, we're now come to the end of our time, Peter. But the other question, I suppose, which we've mentioned before, is the so-called TINA issue, which is, you know, if we are in an era when we've got high inflation, we've got rising bond yields, we've got equity valuations, perhaps under pressure. But the question is, what alternatives are there in, in an inflationary era to real assets, of which equities are real asset they, over time anyway, not in the short term, but over time, uh, and similarly with perhaps commodities in some cases and also property perhaps. So that's a bigger issue, I think, for the future. We'll come back to that one, I think. But in the meantime, I think we have to draw close there. But it is a worrying time in, in many ways, and the markets have been worried, but there are signs that they are uh, beginning to uh, price in possible outcomes here. Um, but it's going to be continued uncertainty for a period, I fear. And uh, while we watch this uh, horrible show, if I can put it that way, going on in uh, the eastern flank of Europe. I'm very glad that you ended our podcast today with Tina. There is no alternative, simply because this morning I woke up thinking there is no alternative and I wrote a piece entitled There is no alternative. So it's a very nice coincidence that you mentioned that. Uh, Depending on when we next talk, there will surely be changes and it'll be very interesting to discuss those. So I say to you, thank you very much again, Jonathan, as always, and I look forward to our next meeting. Indeed, as do I. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or M&M podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.